hey, y'all, I got writer's block, whatever the equivalent of that is for running an organization, whatever that is in podcasting, I got that shit. I'm going to be completely honest with you for the last since November. So today is December 31st. It's New Year's Eve. Um, I will say since November 5th is probably been it's probably when I've been noticing the struggle of just being able to be real. Um, I've seen how like Andrew Tate got, quote, canceled uh, for saying things that were just completely twisted in the media and then you know that didn't really affect him like he came out of it uncanceled and then over the last couple of days uh, he's been detained for human trafficking allegations or something like that I I don't know but these kinds of things like I ain't gonna lie to you it scares me um and after having been in Portland Oregon for a little bit over a year you know I've also recognized that Uh, My views have changed a little bit or I've just become more aware of them. And I can honestly say, like, I think that I'm probably a little bit more conservative than I am liberal uh, in a sense of some ideologies and the way that things are done uh, and aren't done. And so, like, I'm even finding that I've been, like, dancing around saying shit like that. Um, I've been dancing around just the fact that my style of kink and BDSM, like while I like to engage in that community, I like to witness it, I like to support it, and there are things that I enjoy doing, but at the core of it all, like I just like to fuck. And a lot of the kink stuff to me is just like, whoa, you know, I don't think I can do that. Like, good for you, but I don't think that's for me. And damn, it kind of feels good to be able to say that out loud. Um, I've not had people disagree with me over the last six years that I've been running something positive for positive people. And I've most recently been expressing more of my opinions and I'm finding that I am being disagreed with and that there are very great discussions that are coming out of that as well. I've been spending, uh, intentionally spending less time on social media ever since uh, late October when I got back or mid-October when I got back from Berlin, Germany. That trip was really life-changing for me because I was so disconnected from everything that I was used to, including the sex education space, including a lot of the online connections that I've had and made and being able to just really be alone myself in an uncomfortable environment. Like I reverted to survival. I can tell you my first week that I was in Berlin, I didn't notice getting a single erection. I did not get an erection while I was in Berlin. I was in like survival mode. My flight, fight, freeze, fawn response is, well, I don't have those responses anymore. I have what I call a forward response. Uh, I'm self-aware enough to know when I'm alarmed. I don't like to say triggered because triggered implies a sense of helplessness. But when I'm alarmed and bells and whistles are going off in my head, I know what that means. And I get to consciously decide, Okay, this is what that is. This is the energy behind it. And I'm going to move forward with it. So being in Berlin uh, in a whole nother country, even going was something that was uh, activating for me. And I chose to move forward. And even being there, like I had to stay in that forward response. And what that is metaphorically to me is um, 
how we respond to trauma. So I was in a triggered state and decided to continue to go through uh, being in that triggered state and use that um, that sense of being triggered to go. Like I just, it was, it was go. Everything was on go. And when we're triggered, I think we sort of revert back to this sense of survival. And that's what it was for me. I think at the core of everything, no matter who you are, what you believe in, your orientation, what you like doing, in extreme cases of survival, we always revert back to our nature. And every human being at their core wants their nature to be nurtured. So this means having that sense of identity validation. Who you are at your core, you want that to be nurtured. And in order for that to happen, it has to be seen. And in order for that to be seen, you have to be willing to accept and go into there, uh, into discovering what that is for you. And then being able to put it out there. Um, and that was what this process was for me. It was a metamorphosis. It was a cocooning going into myself because that was all I had. I'm fortunate that one of my college teammates was out there, uh, that someone uh, that I've done uh, a relationship summit with was lived out there. I was able to meet up with her. Uh, Laureen HD, who runs the YouTube channel, she was someone who I probably had one of the first conversations about um, just my thought process changing and like the, the concept of privilege and oppression and victim mentality. Um, I got to sort of process this out loud with her and I'm very thankful for how she was such a safe space for me to verbalize these things, especially to somebody who is in a similar space, um, being in the sex education, sexual health, uh, communication space. And I'll, I'll say this too, like, um, I've not necessarily had my identity validated as a man in I don't know I, I really can't say probably since I played sports and being around other men other young men who were developing into men being around them and then uh, playing sports like having a goal having to accomplish something you know I see so much on the internet and I hear so much even just in conversations passing by just about men ain't shit, men are trash, blah, blah, blah. And I never really realized how that affected me until one day, uh, it was actually in Berlin, maybe, um, that I, I really noticed and where I like leaned into it. I noticed that I was not seeing a lot of things that were speaking positively about men. And uh, there was a woman there who told me, haha, you're so funny in her French accent, sexy ass. If you listen to this, hi. Um, but yeah, she told me I was funny and that lit me up. I can't tell you the last time I had just like a genuine compliment, uh, just on my character. I feel like walking around Portland, like people always ask me, especially black people. Oh, how do you like Portland? Or what you think of Portland so far? No, it's not especially black people. It's everybody. Everybody who asked me, what do I think of Portland? Um, like I would say I, I come from St. Louis, Missouri. And racism, whatever you, however you want to label it, like it exists and it always is going to look different. Do I feel like a victim of racism? No. The most racist thing that I've ever experienced happened when I was probably seven, eight, nine years old. I remember I went fishing with my dad. My dad's 18 years older than me. Um, 
so he was in his mid-20s when we went to the January Wabash Park in St. Louis, Missouri, off of North Florissant or New Florissant Road. It's in Florissant. And um, we were going fishing. We, met, we had the buckets. We had the fishing poles. We had the bait. And we had this amazing spot. My dad always got up early, and I, I'd always be up early, too. I had my alarm set ready to go. I saw my dad on weekends, mostly, because I lived with my mother and my grandfather. So... We go fishing. We go to this, uh, is it a pond or a lake? I don't know that it was a lake. But uh, we were at this pond. We're at this thing, whatever it is. And uh, we find this little spot under a tree. This is apparently where, like, bass will be at. We throw our lines in the water. We're starting to set up. And then there's these rocks being splashing in the pool. And so we look over to where the rocks are coming from. And there's this little white kid. A little white kid was younger than me. I could have fucked him up. And he's skipping rocks and throwing them where we are. We look over and I remember this old fat white man just like sitting under the tree, just watching his kid do this. And my dad, he looks over at me. He goes, come on, son, let's go. And it was like a very disappointed humbug. Come on, son, let's go. And we start packing up our shit. And I don't understand what's going on. But then this little white kid is like, yeah, you better get out of here, you fucking niggers. Dad doesn't say anything. And I don't think at this point I really knew the depth of what that meant. But I remember like my dad just had this like defeated look on him. I'm like, my dad could whoop the shit out of his dad. I could beat the shit out of his kid. Like, why, why won't we do this? And we packed up and we left. This was again when I was seven, eight years old. I'm 34 now. I had this conversation with my father. Um, when I was back home in November. So mid-November, I sat down with my dad. I was like, hey, do you remember this situation? I explained it to him. And he, he can't remember. And it makes me wonder. I'm like, damn, you know, like how racist was stuff happening around, you know, him and his years to where this super significant thing in my childhood that I remember is so, like that was the most prevalent racist experience that I've ever had, you know. Um, another one was getting pulled over and matching the description, but the cop let me off. You know, I don't think people are inherently bad, you know, um, and cops too. Like I have friends that are cops and I think that for myself, like people who yell racism have not experienced racism. Like they just haven't, or they've experienced it secondhandedly. And what I mean by secondhandedly is probably not even accurate. I'd say tertiarily. So you might know somebody who knows somebody who saw something on social media and that's what they think all experiences are. My experience as a black man living in Portland is uh, not even, I won't even say that. I'll get back to what it's like being in Portland for myself. But on the internet, I remember um, I posted this uh, a tweet that I made. I was like, I'm unsubscribing from all men or trash content. If I see it, I'm just unfollowing you. I realized that when I was in Germany and I didn't have this, my social media like flooding into my face, I was very present. I took off my social media um, unless I was on Wi-Fi. So I was out and about for the majority of the time that I was there. And even when I was out or like in the clubs, you can't have your phone. They'll put a sticker over your camera or they'll take your phone completely. And I really enjoyed this because it allowed for me to practice being present, especially in a room with other people who are also practicing being present. So I'm skipping around a little bit. But when I found myself not exposed to the content that I was normally exposed to, um, 
I think my algorithm sort of switched and I, I believe that it switched after um, Andrew Tate's uh, messaging had exploded and got big and I started to see more people talking about men in a positive perspective. Uh, I think it's called, yeah, it is. It is called Manosphere, Red Pill, whatever. And when I started seeing those things, I was like, oh, like this, this person cares about me. Like they see me and it felt good. And then I asked myself, I was like, all right, if this feels good, what the fuck have I been listening to all this time? Like what, how do I feel outside of what I'm watching here? So when I did go back to scrolling my news feeds, I would see shit like um, men jokes, like penis shaming comments or size shaming, uh, talking about how useless men are um, and we don't need men for shit. I don't need no man. I started seeing that stuff. And then I started to see more um, people in their stories. There was one girl in particular who I unfollowed. And I, I thought that this was interesting, too, that. She really talked down about how her dating experience was. And she like was on a dating site, but didn't want to talk to anybody. She matched with this dude that she liked and he was uh, cool. He was interesting and they were messaging for a bit and he was trying to meet up. And she was so annoyed that he was trying to meet up. And the way that she talked about him was just so disrespectful. And I was like, yo, this dude likes you. And here you are just shitting on him for pursuing you unsubscribe <laughs> so I, I unfollowed her and not too long after making the post um she was actually one of the people who commented on i gave myself some space because i wanted to see how i was going to deal with some of the bullshit that was in my comments they were like well you need to take accountability because men men blah 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 and it's very elitist and misogynistic all these fucking words just being thrown at me for shit that i'm not even doing like i'm telling you I am taking care of my mental health. I'm doing this for me. This is what I need. And I'm doing it. And it just got so shit on and disrespected. I even had someone who she decided that she was non-binary this day because I'd been talking to her using very gendered language for I don't know how long. And this day when I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I get back to you name girl because this is just how I talk. And then she goes or they go, well, actually, I'm feeling more non-binary today. And that I don't know why this infuriates me so much. I kind of do. But that's a side conversation. And so this person just began sending me articles and links and education because they majored in or took a genders class or some shit like that. And we're like, here's the, the harm behind uh, unsubscribing from the men are trash content. And I was like, yo, we can't even have a civil conversation based on the rapport that we've built with one another. Like we have been, we developed what I thought was a friendship. Yes, it was virtual, but like, I thought that, you know, we could genuinely talk to each other, you know, but that was one of the things too, that just made me realize how easily and how, uh, how easy it is to enable yourself to be taken advantage of and used because whenever there was a problem, whenever this person had issues with men or uh, disclosing or they needed some advice, I was where they would come to. And it, it was like more of a venting session. The things that they would want to say to the man that caused them harm were being said to me. And I recognized, oh, this is a pattern. This is a pattern of mine. So that had to, that had to go too. like I had to. This controversy of me just sharing, this is a thing that's happening. Here's how I'm taking care of myself. 
and to receive like how it's not okay for you, Courtney, to take care of yourself. You actually need to just uh, the equivalent of the LeBron James issue that came out with the news anchor. LeBron was speaking on something and she was like, just shut up and dribble, shut up and play basketball. I was like, I was getting, you know, there was an attempt to gang up on me and be like, Courtney, shut up and talk about herpes. No. <laughs> and so I, I did feel a little bit bad that this connection was just gone. But I was like, yo, I, that's not my responsibility. So this person asked that I delete them. Um, so I went on ahead and deleted them. And um, I, I guess they blocked me. I don't know. I forgot their um Instagram handle, but anyway, no, I didn't. I remember it now that I just said that out loud. But um, this bit of controversy for me, like, really made me see just how, like, how numb I was, like, how numb I was to the content, like the man of trash, man ain't shit content from people, um, and myself included. Like, I think that I fed into that shit for a while too. Um, I might have shared something that was more shaming than I even thought it was. But it's not that the positive men's content made me feel so good that it made me recognize how the content that I was consuming on a regular basis just made me feel bad. It's that I had become so numb to it. I didn't even realize I was feeling anything at all. Like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you go from, you know, just at what point do you, do something or speak out against uh, just the, I, I don't even know what to call it. I'm sure there's a word for it, but just like the way that people talk shit on the patriarchy and the way that they're like men, period, you know, not these structures that are in place that on one hand enable for society to function as it does, but on the other hand, may be crippling to some people but I, I just don't like this idea of people looking at me because I'm a black man and immediately thinking I'm a victim or oppressed are there opportunities that are out there that I wish I could have or that I know I could have if I was white yeah but also I don't know that I would have developed the resilience that I've had because I, I'll tell you this I'm the only black man in the space that I occupy. And I think that I've been able to be as consistent and disciplined as I have been because of my background, because of the resilience that I had to build growing up because of that racist encounter with that kid. Like that was probably one of the more extreme situations than any of any racism that people my age have experienced, you know, unless somebody, like I remember my dad, um, I've been talking to my family a lot more about their past and their experiences throughout life. My great grandmother, she saw some shit. My great grandma almost lost her life, y'all, for whooping this white boy. Like she gave him a whooping. She was an adult. He was a kid. She whooped this white boy for um, hitting some other. It was another black kid. And the white father came out and was like, you whooped my kid. And she's like, yes, I did. And that was it. She would have been rationally fucking uh, whipped and in these days lynched my grandmother is about to be she turns 90 on January 11th and like I'm I'm collecting this wisdom from my family because reading and seeing all these social media posts about transgender transgenerational trauma 
um, got me curious. Like I got curious. I want to know like what patterns do I have that perhaps my elders in my family have passed down to me? How did they deal with it? Are they even aware of them? And that gives me sort of a starting point for myself to identify what it is that like what my work is, what it is that I need to work on, what I need to work through, what I need to heal. And um, speaking to her, it, it, it's really phenomenal because I was able to make a connection. And the connection that I made was that, uh, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm skipping around and I, I don't like that I'm doing this. Uh, but this is probably the most motivated that I've been to record in a while. So I just want to go ahead and ride this wave while I'm on it. Um, my father puts floors in and he's damn good at it. He's put floors in since I was a kid. I've learned so much about hard work from him. And my dad, very early on, like uh, I, I was a summer apprentice for putting floors in when I was 16, 17 years old. And uh, when I'd come home, uh, no, because I, I stayed at school uh, when I was in college because I wanted to work out for football. Before I went to college, I was a summer apprentice making $16 an hour uh, and I got to work with him. So we're putting floors in and like I remember I saw the men who were dressed nicer. I was like, hey, what do they do? I was like, oh, that's a journeyman. Like those people are not the journeyman. Um, I don't know what their titles were, but whatever they were, they, they sold. They might have just been a salesman. So they were there just to make sure that motherfuckers like me and my dad were constantly working like carrying heavy shit on our knees mixing up uh fluid using tools showing up on time and i found out how much they made i was like yo why what like they make more money than the people who were doing the work i was like that's what i need to be aiming towards and i i think that was my last summer putting floors in but my dad Excuse me, my dad at 52 years old today um, is still putting floors in. He's still working um, as a journeyman, as a floor layer contractor, uh, and he's got like retirement pension coming up and all of that. So I sat down with my father and my brothers and we did a recording, just conversation. I want to be able to pass down. Also, I realized that um, in the sex positivity space, like I recognized that uh, I hit this point where I thought that, oh, I can't have kids because kids are expensive and I don't make near enough money to be able to support a family. And that for me, like I've always wanted a big family. My family is huge, but it's very separated. And like I've got family in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, mostly in the South. Um, but I think like the closest people to me um, are all in St. Louis. And I'm the oldest of five, but I'm technically an only child, uh, only child. I am my parents' only child together. But I have three younger brothers and a younger sister, and I'm the oldest. So this um, realization that, like, I do want a family. Like, I want. I, I remember at one point I wanted five kids. I don't know how realistic that is now. But I also know that, like, my mom had me on whatever is less than minimum wage. And then I look at how I turned out. Like my, my dad and my stepmother had my two younger brothers and they made it to, you know, they're almost 30, right? So who's to say that like, I can't 
raise kids. I, I let the social media, social media has put this intuitive, this artificial in, uh, intuition inside of me. And disengaging from it allowed for me to really connect with what it is that I want. And I recognize just how under the influence I am or have been am because I still utilize social media. So I'm therefore still being influenced. And I think about like how we've gone from witnessing celebrities being celebrities and the key influential people. And there were just a few opinions that you had to follow to now they're being influencers like influencers as a much more broad statement. And unfortunately, these are the things that people are striving towards. Uh, for myself, I didn't think that I'd be any sort of educator or influencer. I damn sure didn't think I'd be uh, someone by someone living with herpes at age 34 with no kids. Like My dad had a 17-year-old when he was 34 years old. I can't imagine. I can't imagine looking over and seeing like a little version of myself. Not only did my dad have a 17-year-old, but he also had a 13-year-old and a 12-year-old. My mom had a 17-year-old. And then a, how old is my little sister? Eight years. Wow. A 26-year-old. And a, 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 hold on, I'm mixing up my math. <laughs> when I was 17, my mom had a 9-year-old and a 4-year-old. I cannot imagine can't imagine that i can't imagine doing what i do right now and you know also having children but that's the problem i can't imagine because social media has taken the internet has taken so much of my own energy my own creative power and just allowed for it to leak out of me without me even knowing it's a space for creativity. You are either producing or you are consuming. You're consuming the creativity of others. And that's even arguable because the creativity is artificial. It's the algorithm. The algorithm is sort of like an artificial God. We praise it. We tell it what we like, what we want, and it gives us more of that. And it, it quote, inspires us to do these dumbass TikTok dances and challenges. If you can't tell, I don't like TikTok. I don't like making reels. I don't like making TikTok videos, but there is something rewarding out of it when I do it and it's executed. And the the dopamine hits that you get from people liking it or viewing it or commenting on it or sharing it and getting that engagement, those are the things that are sort of like the the cheese at the end of the maze for the rat to go through. And that's what I feel like. Like I feel like <sighs> exhausted afterwards because it's also not nearly as reciprocal as hosting this podcast is like this environment that I have for podcasting, being able to um, just freely speak here and stumble through, ramble, jump around in my exp explanations. Like I'm able to connect with people who resonate with these things and the environment itself is reciprocal because of the connection there. I don't think that social media gives me that. And honestly, like I've been way less involved on it. And I feel that I do have a lot more energy in my personal life. I have been investing more in making my own personal friendships. I try I'm in the process of getting a new website built for myself and starting another business. And also, like I've really settled down, which was supposed to be what I was talking about settling down. But um I ended up here. We are 27 minutes into the podcast and I haven't even gotten on that. But uh, wrapping up what I was trying to say about my dad is uh, he talked about when we were doing our recording, he, he had made a mention. He was like, yeah, you know, um, 
he has a pension. His pension's coming up and might uh, he'll be able to retire in I don't know how many years. But my brother asked him, he was like, hey, why didn't you ever just go off and start your own business? And my dad was talking about his pension. He was like, yeah, you know, I work for the union and I want to get my pension. I want to get my retirement. And my dad's very intelligent. And I, I watched him for the first time. Again, my dad taught me everything I know or knew about putting in floors. And I remember him being like, he used to talk about it. He used to talk about starting a business and he never did. And my younger brother, who is working to do that himself, uh, he asked me, he's like, every time I come to you for advice, like, you don't help me. Like, you you kind of just go off on these tangents and I sat and I just watched what was happening and then it turned into a fight like that turned into a whole argument but that's that <laughs> that that just taught me that I think that maybe my dad's a little bit disappointed that he didn't start his own business and my brother's also disappointed in him for not starting his business because maybe he thinks that he would have had a different quality of life as well but um, when I asked my dad uh, one of the questions that I asked him early on in the interview was um, my grandmother, uh, his mom, my dad's mom, passed away when I was 11 and her funeral was on my 12th birthday. And the anniversary of that would have come by, would have been like the 22 year anniversary. I'm like, damn, man, my grandma been dead for 22 years. The 22nd anniversary of that date had just passed and I was like hey you know do you remember you know grandma tell me about like your most fondest memory of grandma and so we were talking about that and he talked about just growing up and he talked about living with his grandmother who was the mother of my grandmother um and he spoke about how the there was this incentive uh for there not being a black man in the house if there was um if the woman was pregnant and I, this is still going on today. I don't know if it's, if it's as extreme, but a social worker would come by and visit and look to see if there were any big shoes or big jackets, big clothes anywhere just to find out if a man was living there. And if the man wasn't living there, then the women who were in the house who had kids, would get whatever that check was and him saying that. And then when asked about the business, how he mentioned like his pension, his pension, working for that pension made me remember a time for myself. Um, I'm, I get food stamps here in Oregon. That's not going to happen much longer because I, I just got another job. So I guess depending on what those hours look like, that'll be taken away. Yay. Um, and when I was talking to the lady on the phone, I was letting her know, like, all right, here's how much money I make. Uh, and here's the situation. Like sometimes there are moments where I will make a lot of money, but that is not consistent uh, with my job. Um, teaching medical students how to give a genital exam that job pays really really well however there are very few hours <laughs> so she's like oh you know if it's just a one-off here and there then don't worry about it i was like yes she slipped up and told me the amount of money that i would need to make in order to no longer qualify for food stamps and when she told me that i had this thought to myself i was like oh cool as long as i don't make too much money then i'll be able to continue to get this 250 dollars a month for food stamps and after i thought that i said what the fuck I'm going to intentionally let myself not make more money in order to continue to get $250. Like, what kind of sense does that make? It doesn't. It makes no sense. And I was like, where the fuck did that thought come from? 
And that thought happened before I spoke to my dad, before I spoke to my great grandmother. And I got to put it all together. Right. So I'm the one who challenged the thought. My dad was in the thought for himself because he also mentioned how much money he would be able to charge for like putting in a bathroom. If he were to work for himself, he said something about like, oh, yeah, you know, these contracts, they can charge like eight, he said eight grand for or nine grand, eight or nine grand for putting in a bathroom and I'll charge 800 for it. I was like, nigga, you proud of that? <laughs> right? Like, wait, what? So how much is your pension to where you're missing out on 1100% profit or you would miss out on 1100% profit if you were to do that, you know? And even, even if he was to do that, like for himself, he'd probably have more money to himself than he would, um, just working as a contractor. But it was between that thought, like he chose to continue to go to safe route and work the safe route um, rather than run the risk of losing his retirement or his uh, pension. And I uh, got to see where that started for him and where that started at for him was when he was um, seeing the social worker come by and he saw it in his aunts and uh, uh, his aunts, the women around him, basically him growing up, he got to see that. Like it was rather than going to get a job or trying to do better, any kind of education, it was I'm going to have these kids and I'm going to get more money from the government as I keep having these kids. And I was just like, wow, I was able to trace this shit back that far to actually be able to say to myself, this isn't mine. This thought process, the whole thing with the with the food stamps, that's not mine. <laughs> the whole thing with the scarcity mindset, like that's the core of it. The core of it is this sense of scarcity. It's this sense of um, if I if I do more, then I'm giving up my sense of of safety and security, and I don't value that. I, again, I packed up, moved to Portland, Oregon. I moved here a year and two months ago now. And I did this for the possibility of getting a grant, a $10,000 grant for me to run my podcast. And I'm so glad that it worked out. I'm very fortunate that it worked out. And I'm thankful to everybody who made that happen. Um, the Oregon Health Authority for giving me that $10,000, as well as um, the uh, jobs that I've gotten, the people who made the connections for me in order to get these jobs so that I can support myself while pursuing my passion and I'm, I'm super super grateful for that so while I'm back on Portland uh, I think I wrapped up the story about my uh, dad that I wanted to tell um, the racism piece it feels very much like there's a sense of performative allyship like tying this back into the story that I was telling about when I said you know I'm unsubscribing from men are trash content Taking it back to that, that person who I fell off with and the person that I unfollowed, it was almost like, you know, they were, this person was trying to like tell on me. They started tagging other women who have herpes, I guess, who are in the space. Like they wanted me, to, they wanted them to come check me or something. Like, first off, what, like, what, <laughs> what do you you calling the herpes police on me because I'm not talking about herpes. Like the second I get out of line, like how racist is that? 
right? But I didn't go there. I just let this person say what they had to say, say what they wanted to say. And I mean, sometimes it's just what people need. Uh, they feel a sense of powerlessness um, within themselves and they got to exert that power onto somebody else. And that was sort of a thing that I was alluding to as well, um, because people were like, we're, this is how we take our power back. And I was like, yo, there's a big difference between taking your power back and then having your power misplaced myself as an example the consumption of social media consistently or the consumption of internet content um that consumption has allowed for me to just leak my energy like i'm picturing a wiffle ball um where there's holes in it you know and i'm carrying the energy and it's just these slow leaks um, now the wiffle ball holes are really big. I don't have a better analogy than that. Or like a tire, you know, I got four tires on a car, right? And let's just say each tire has a slow leak. You won't notice the leak until the light comes on or until you hear that sound. Like if you have a nail in your tire, you'll hear it. It'll sound like as you drive, cause it'll just make that noise. And if you're not sitting down and in tune enough to notice the nail in the tire or that there's a slow leak, you'll miss it until it's too late. Fortunately for me, I've been practicing yoga. I've been making more time for myself. I've been journaling. When I was in Germany, I didn't have any distractions. So I was able to recognize the slow leak of uh, my energy leaking out of me. And so plugging those holes for me looks like I now only utilize social media if I'm on my laptop or if I'm connected to Wi-Fi. Whenever I'm out and about, I'll... Um, I have to I have it to where I don't get any notifications on this phone. I deleted the apps off of the phone that I use uh, for my day to day life for texting calls and things like that. But the phone that I record podcasts on, that's the one that has a social media app so that I can upload everything. And if I am just at home and on Wi-Fi, then like that's when I'll browse around on social media. Right. So that's my um, I forgot where that started. Oh, the um, the racism thing, it, it seems like it's very performative. Um, I would say performative allyship is probably a very key phrasing of it. Um, like I don't like going to places and I see like the Black Lives Matter sign. Like, OK, do you understand like what you're really supporting? Like, how much do you know about Black Lives Matter? Like, do you know the cause that you're supporting? Like, I think that people are just spouting out buzzwords and things that are trendy for the sake of maybe finding community. But ultimately what I see is that's a sign that says, Hey, black people come spend your money here because we put this sign up. It's like the equivalent of when something happens, when a black man's murdered by a cop, you know, Everyone is on board with, oh, we need to do something for black people, support these black people. I'm going to click this share button. I'm going to type something and then hit send. And then, ah, yeah, dopamine. Like I did something. I feel like I accomplished something. That was my part. I did my part. And it, that took like 10 seconds. You hit the share button from somebody you follow or not even follow. Like someone did that to me and they didn't follow me. They didn't know what my content was about. They were just like, support this black man when George Floyd was murdered. And that didn't feel good to me. It felt like that's how you see me. You see me the same way that you see George Floyd. You see me the same way that you see um, another black man of completely different experience. Like you don't see me for my character. And that's kind of how I felt when I was attacked by these I'm not going to say attack 
when I was when these people came at me on my social media for that I'm not condoning men or trash content I'm just unsubscribing from it because it was like how dare you take care of your mental health you're you're a perpetrator it's like no I haven't no I'm not <laughs> I'm not and we're gonna leave it at that so as far as the performative allyship performative activism goes like the the anti-racist stuff like it feels to me as if people have seen an opportunity to profit off of something and that's what they're doing like now i think about these authors of anti-racist stuff and like the guilt and the shame like i, I work in people like not being ashamed of themselves and so for me to see the shaming applied in different areas like i see that shit everywhere now and it, it it's it's terrible because you can't unsee it once you see shit and you acknowledge it and recognize what it is, you can't unsee it. And I see it applied to so many different things. I see it applied to like the gender politics. I see it applied to um, LGBT issues. I see it applied to black issues. I see it applied now to like the feminism and men versus women issues. And like what, it's not even men versus women. I think it's more black men, black women division than it is anything else. Whole nother conversation. But coming into recognizing what this shit is man and seeing things so objectively like i recognized that I'm, I'm catching myself like trying to i can't believe it's already been 41 minutes like I, this needed to come out apparently because uh, i still haven't even gotten to the point that i wanted to make for the whole podcast episode but it, it feels so good to be able to just say this shit and I, I gotta say it, like it does. It really feels good for me to just have this space created for me where one, I feel safe enough to say whatever it is that I'm saying. And you know, if I gotta experience cancellation or if people decide they don't fuck with me anymore, all right, cool. But like I, as I've tried to um, write the book, um, I'm writing a book, something positive for positive people that essentially condenses the podcast down into an audio format of just a few hours because hey we've got almost 300 hours of content like if every episode's an hour 300 hours of content nobody should have to dig through all of that so i've taken like the more important and useful points that were made and i'm, I'm putting it into an audio book if it goes into publication after that or whatever yay cool but the the big deal for me right now is um getting that book out so um yeah i've had this writer's block and i've had all of these personal experiences and i i really struggled with sharing my own personal experience because a lot of it is talking like this i say shit i say fuck i say nigga i'm black i'm, I'm all these things like and i i don't care to be seen you know for oh courtney's a black man in this space doing this like I don't I don't like that. Like, why can't you just talk about what I'm doing or, you know, describe who I am, my character? Like, why does the default have to be that I'm a man, that I'm black or why does it have to be that, you know, oh, well, do the issues support LGBT issues? Like, do, do, does he support black issues? No, this is a it's been a herpes issue. It's been a sex issue. It's been a sexual health issue. And while this at its core expands into all of these different intersections, like speak to that, 
And I think that that's probably why I feel as isolated or as lonely in this space as I am, because so much of this is about these marginalizations and I don't fucking feel marginalized. I don't feel like a victim. Like I'm able to if I need a job, I can get a job. If I need work, I can work. If I need money, I can go make money. If I would if I need a thing. We live in the best time possible for me to go out and get that thing. I can get on the Internet and Google whatever it is that I need to figure out how to do. I can learn anything in a few hours, a few video YouTube videos. I needed to jump a car and I couldn't remember for the life of me if which car, uh, which the order in which to attach the cables to jump a car. And I was able to just fucking YouTube it and it took me three minutes. And I was able to do that. Like we can learn and do anything. So don't please don't look at me and think I'm a victim or I'm oppressed because you looked at another black person because that's racist. If you see this black person who's struggling and having this uh, these issues, whatever, it's not always because they're a victim or they're oppressed. It's because of the way that they made decisions. Maybe their family didn't set them up the way uh, for success the way that they did. And even for me, like I wasn't really. My family didn't know what to do with me after college. They told me to stay in school, don't get killed. Keep my hair cut low. And that's probably why I'm growing my shit out now is because that was one of the things that was a survival thing. It was a survival thing. My family didn't want me to have long hair. My shit used to be cut. I used to hate looking like I was bald. My dad's bald. I, don't want, I like my hair. And that was a thing that, so like if I was oppressed in any way, like my parents oppressed me from having long hair. I'm, I'm, I'm being an asshole when I say that, but like <laughs> this, this, this needed to come out, I guess, like all of this needed to come out. Um, but no, please stop doing that. Stop looking at people and comparing them to, you know, the tertiary experience that you had uh, through social media. If you hear somebody's like, oh, yeah, black people are oppressed. Don't fucking look at me and like pity me because I, that's not the case. That's not the case. And I work too fucking hard. I bust my ass way too much on a regular basis to stay consistent, to remain disciplined, to be as transparent as I possibly can on this podcast, on this platform and getting people like practicing what I preach and trying to just keep serving people in the way that I do in a consistent way. I work too hard for my fucking life, for my value, for my experiences to be devalued and diminished down to just another person who shares a similar skin complexion as me. Let's stop doing that to people. Let's stop doing that to each other. Morgan Freeman said the fastest way that we can get over racism is to just stop talking about it. Even that, like that's become a profitable thing. You know, it's like people, people don't want to do hard jobs. People don't want to do what my dad does. I'm one of those people. I'm people. Hey, I don't want to put floors in. I don't want to do manual labor. I don't want to go in sewers, hover over skyscrapers. I don't want to be around sharp objects and manufacturing and shit like that. No, that's not what I want to do. And so I found a problem and I have explored where this problem is and decided that this is what I'm going to commit myself to. So going into the settling down thing, like I am absolutely settling down. I'm settling into what I believe um, 
my role through something positive for positive people supposed to be and it's not even exclusively limited to that um i am pursuing grant writing for myself like for the last three years i've been trying to get funding i've been trying to get enough donations to be able to just pay for people to get therapy and i I really had to sit and reflect on this because someone asked me my friend aj I, i called him one day and i was like man i need advice and i i very rarely do that shit like I feel that I, everything works itself out. Like I find myself in the position, there's an opportunity, I take the opportunity and then it works out. I am fucking exhausted from waiting. I don't like waiting. I got to wait on the right time, wait on the right opportunity. And I don't want to do that. I want to choose because the way that I navigate my work life is the same way that I navigate relationships. Like I just kind of go with the flow. Like, oh, here's a new partner. Yay, that worked out. I don't have to do anything but wait. And the whole thing about patience, patience is a virtue. Yes, but also so is assertiveness. Assertiveness is necessary, especially for myself as a man to be able to decide, all right, hey, I'm choosing this. This is what I'm choosing. Here's what I'm doing. If I need to reverse engineer the process of, okay, accomplish goal, how, what will I have needed to do to get there? What will I have needed to do to get to the point right before getting to that point and then breaking it down so that I could take the steps? And so I called my friend AJ. I was like, yo, I'm stuck. Here's where I'm at. Like I, I one have things that I need to say and I don't feel prepared to deal with the consequences of those things. I, I didn't say it like this. Like it's much more concise after having like thought, look, speak of the devil. He just texted me now. I keep getting <laughs> notifications because I forgot to put my phone on. Do not disturb. But um, that was what he told me. He was like, well, what's your five year plan? Like, have you thought about what you need to do? And even my therapist said this. He's like, well, what's your 10 year plan? And I get such anxiety, like just thinking about that shit. Like that's when I get activated and I, I get triggered and I start having to think about this shit. And I'm more in a free state because I just don't know. Like, it's hard for me to think about the future because I wasn't even supposed to be here. Statistically speaking, uh, going back to the uh, tertiary intuitive uh, or tertiary artificial intuition. How many songs? Kanye West has a song. We wasn't supposed to make it past 25. Jokes on you. We still alive. Tupac said it. You know, we went. We ain't supposed to make it past 25. And that's what this fucking statistics say. And we ain't there anymore. Like, that's just not where we are as a society. Like, that ain't what life is. Like, the the whole slavery and racism, that shit just looks different. It's evolved. It's developed. It's something that has self-perpetuated itself. And I think I can speak for all black people when I can say, like, I've seen more racism between us and among each amongst each other than I have from white people themselves. Like motherfuckers will point out things that were racist by a white person that wouldn't even be on my radar. Like this motherfucker didn't throw rocks in my pool and call me a fucking nigger and tell me to get out of here. No, this person probably just was oblivious to a thing. And while that might cause harm to someone in a privileged position, that doesn't harm me. Like, all right, I'll just go do something else. And I don't think a lot of people, a lot of people don't think like that because they haven't had these experiences. And also, like, I, I recognize I don't speak about this shit. Like, I've made so much of my existence, the podcast about other people that I don't want to say I've forgotten my own experiences, but I'm very much disconnected with or disconnected from 
uh, being able to communicate about my experiences, um, the racism piece included. So like, like I said, I'm in Portland and I recognize like the racism that I experience here is performative, but I also see how it benefits me. Um, I don't know how I found this out, but, uh, I learned that like at my job, people of color get priority for bookings and I'm going to be honest, like I, I, don't, I ain't even been there. I have been there a year next month. I don't think that's fair to somebody who's been there for 20 years, 10 years, who's been doing this job way longer than me, who's probably way better at me. And in that sense, like it feels like taking advantage. And that is a that's a privilege like that to me is what privilege represents. Uh, No, I can't say that because after the conversation with Lorraine, she gave me a much better understanding of privilege. But to me. What would I call this? I don't know what I would call this, but like I am given every opportunity, first priority opportunity, because I'm also the only black dude. (laughs) So we also had that. And I might be the only black person. There's a guy there who speaks Spanish, who's dark, but I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know if he's uh, I don't know his ethnicity, but uh, he's got a little bit of an accent. So I I think I'm the only black dude there. I'm the only black person um, on the team. And so like I get priority to work and I really don't think that's fair but like that's kind of what the racism looks like and I don't agree with that like let the best people for the job get the job and then filter it by availability you know but that's again that's something that I benefit from and so oh I guess that would be privilege I don't know man this shit's confusing the wording of everything is just extremely confusing but I'm I'm here and I'm I'm happy to be here and I'm here working. Like being in Portland was probably the best thing for me because I did get to see uh, like the extreme uh, end of the spectrum of liberalism. Uh, liberalism, I, I guess. Like I hate using these like phrases and words, but like an extreme openness to the point of apathy. Like it seems like people genuinely don't give a fuck. Uh, Andrew Scholl said this. He said, uh, Portland, he hates Portland. Portland's the worst city in the world. And he said it's because it's like a city without God. And I, when he said that, I was listening to him explain why. I was like, damn, that's accurate. <laughs> that's probably super accurate. And uh, my, my most recent podcast episode is called, you know, Home is Where the Work is to be Done. And, you know, not to say that I'm doing the work of God necessarily, but there's, a, there's definitely an uh, this atmosphere for me, it enables me to get shit done because I don't fit in. I don't fit in, in the spaces I occupy on the internet. I love the herpes support groups because like I'm open about my status, but I'm in an environment where that, you know, that that's not where it's reciprocated. Um, I've left the men's group. Like I tried to create a men's group. I tried to create a something positive for positive people. Herpes support group. I tried to create all this shit and it just, it, it didn't do anything. Like people wouldn't show up. I, I started messaging people. Like I would make the post, Hey, this time, this day, nothing. And people joined the group right away. And I think that that goes back to these little dopamine hits that we get feeling like we did something. People would join the group. I was like, all right, Hey, let's introduce ourselves. Crickets. Hey, let's meet up this place this time, this day. Crickets. Hey, what time works best for y'all? Crickets. All right, done with the group. But I did make a friend out of that. And um, in our interaction, like we hung out uh, twice. We met up for lunch and uh, then he followed me on social media. And then when we met up again, he asked me something. He asked me something about uh, 
like dating. And my response like shook him up. I was like, yeah, you know, this is what you got to do. You know, this is how you go about dating process. He's like, I didn't expect that from you. And I guess it's because of how I show up on social media being completely different than what he would have expected from me in real life. And I recognize that there's been this, um, there's not been any separation between myself on social media and in real life, except for like what people see. And if you don't ask me my opinion, I don't give you my opinion. Um, like I have very strong beliefs about things, but those strong beliefs don't dictate how I treat people or how I behave towards people who might, uh, have a conflicting belief to me. And that's really what it's all about, man. I think that Again, we all just want our nature nurtured and I'm looking to have my nature nurtured in a place that does not nurture my nature, um, especially being a heterosexual man, um, being black creates other another element to that. But the only reason that these things matter is because we make it matter like we do this labeling and shit like that. So. All of this said, like getting to the core of it, like I'm, I'm learning to write grants because this is something that I want to do. I want to do this. I'm already doing what I want to do. Looking out to that five year, 10 year plan, my friend AJ, the, the advice that he gave me was just to figure that out. And I looked down and I wrote, you know, what would I be doing if I wasn't, if nobody else cared, like if no one's opinion mattered, what would I be doing? And I wrote down, I was like, well, I'd be, I'd be traveling. I'd be cooking more of my own food. I'd still work out every day. I'd be reading, listening to audio books. Um, I'd be practicing yoga. And I, as I was writing this shit down, I was like, this is stuff I'm already fucking doing. I'm doing all of this stuff. I'm just not getting paid for it. And like the consultations, running the podcast, uh, talking to people about their experiences, like this stuff makes me feel connected to. And I realized like ain't nobody coming to save me. Carl told me this a while ago. Carl Givens, owner, giving 100. He said, ain't nobody going to give you nothing. And, you know, even with the nonprofit, it was arguable because it's like, well, people give money all the time. But there's an agenda behind it, of course. Like it has to be connected to. Uh, it has to be a win for them more so than it probably would be for me, which means compromising my values to some extent, I'm sure. But nobody understands something positive for positive people like me. So I'm going through the process. I have a consultation look uh, booked with um, Dr. Beverly Browning. I, be- I hope that's her name. If I just shouted her out and that was wrong, I apologize. But um, I have a consultation booked with her to decide like what's going to be the next route for me, the next best route for me. Because if I can learn how to write my own grant, then... I'll be able to just continue to do this. No charge to anybody. When people are diagnosed with herpes, they find me. The resources are there and I'm able to continue to interview people, take the information that they give me and um, make it into something that can be an intervention that aids STD prevention efforts. Because our lived experiences are things that everybody can learn from. I just need the time, the resources, and the money to be able to make that happen. So I'm going through the process of figuring out what's next um, for me to just write my own grants. And then I'll be able to just make this, you know, like y'all reach out to me. Y'all ain't got to worry about paying anything. Y'all ain't got to worry about donating. Y'all ain't got to worry about liking, subscribing to the podcast, none of that shit, because it's going to be paid for because I went on ahead and I put the work in to look for the money that's out there and then make myself, you know, available to get it. It don't really mean much. Like if I'm, if I were to net $5,000 a month, I have a damn good quality of life. I have a good quality of life right now, but I wouldn't have to do as many things that are 
pulling myself in so many different directions. So all that said, um, I, I thank you for listening and bearing with me through my ramble. Um, this is this is me. Like this is more insight to who I am. Uh, there's a Fet Life kink group for people who have herpes or date people and play with people who have herpes. If you want that, um, hit me up. Link will be in the show notes. And uh, yeah, um, until next time, I told y'all I'm done saying stay sex positive because my mindset has shifted significantly. So we'll figure that out.